The ideal experience is where you can interact, where you matter to the world, you matter to the characters, because why would you not want to matter, <laughs> uh, be the protagonist of your story? Yet it's a world that you actually want to be in, like a one with like rich environment, with an actual great storyline, with great characters, and with rules that you really fall in love with. And I think the film people and, and TV who are great at story, character, and worlds, and getting people great at the interactivity. And what if you could have interactivity in that sweet, awesome world <laughs> story? That would be great. So that's what we are trying to do. So while I do have a games division and I have the film, TV, the publishing division, that's why it's so important that they're working with each other at all times is so that I create these experiences that have the best of both worlds. And I do think that is the future. Welcome to the Gaming Founders Podcast, a show where we interview the founders that have shaped the gaming industry. I'm Eden Chen, the CEO of Pragma, a back-end game engine founded by engineering leaders that built the platforms for some of the largest live service games, like League of Legends, Fortnite, Destiny 2, and Plants vs. Zombies 2. Pragma powers services like accounts, matchmaking, and player data for the world's most ambitious live service games. And I'm Kevin Zane, partner at Upfront Ventures. We're a venture capital firm based in LA and San Francisco. I lead game investments both in studios as well as the pick and shovel tools that power game developers and content creators to do their best work, including Pragma. We interview founders on their origin stories, the tactics that help them survive and thrive, and key lessons for anyone interested in building the next generation of leading gaming companies. Learn more and subscribe today at pragma.gg slash gamingfounders. Maureen is one of the most dynamic entrepreneurs that I know. She's technical, has art and taste, has deep product management experience, and on top of that is great at business. Maureen was an early employee at Zynga and went on to manage Zynga's most popular game, Farmville. She then started one of the most recognized and successful transmedia startups, Baobab Studios, having won nine Emmys. Her talk covers her early days at Zynga, the tension between numbers and art, fundraising strategy, and key advice for founders who want to build a generational company. Now on to the conversation with Maureen. Hey, Maureen, thanks for joining us on the Gaming Founders Podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. Maybe we can start with your your early story. Where did you grow up? How did you get into media and games and technology? I grew up in the best state of the nation, which is New Jersey. I love New Jersey. <laughs> East Coast. Hardcore East Coast person. I lived in California more than I lived in the East Coast now. Um, so I loved animation in particular. I realized it was probably because of racism. <laughs> I didn't realize until during the Asian hate crimes about like all this sadness that I was holding inside me. I was one of the only Asian families <laughs> in our neighborhood. So there was some racism there. And I was one of two Asian kids in our school. So I think animation was in a way an escape. Well, the reason why I love animation in general is it's not constrained by reality, right? It's yeah. literally limitless. So I love that. But also because my mom was uh, a computer scientist. My dad's also an engineer. So she brought home, like I would go to her workplace because she's a workaholic and I'd just sit at her office and so I would play the text-based games because I had nothing else to do there. And then she brought home, you know, the Mac and then the Nintendo and none of my friends wanted to play with me, but their little brothers wanted to play with me. I was super cool, with yeah. them, but not with my normal friends. So I was just introduced to it really early on. 
And I didn't know it was a thing you could actually do. I just know I knew I wanted to make movies. So I looked up before going to college, I looked up every single you know, studio and looked up what jobs they had and looked up what majors and it said econ and communication. So I went to Stanford and thought that's what I was going to do. But then I got bored and <laughs> I took a computer science class. I loved it because it was hard. And I felt like, oh, this is stretching me. And then I realized I could merge it with you know, art and psychology. I learned about human computer interaction. And then I realized that people made animation for a living, which seems obvious. And I really want to make Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> That's what I wanted with both. Oh, that was the first Final Fantasy I played. Great game. It's so good. Well, the problem is I played eight before seven. So everyone was like, Same. seven's the best. And so because Same. I was used to scoring <laughs> graphics on eight, then I did seven. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, that was a big jump. Yes. Oh, but I, I just fell in love with how they were great at both the story aspect and the gameplay. And that to me was my holy grail of what I wanted to do. So I found my people within Stanford. There's a Stanford University Digital Arts Center and they just made animated things. <laughs> so I just found my my tribe. And then I guess you right out of school went into tech and then went from tech to something else. Like, well, how, how did that kind of go about? My immigrant parents forbade me to follow my dreams. <laughs> what I really wanted to do, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to be an art director for animated films or games. And my mom told me I'd be poor and destitute if I followed my dreams. And so I thought, what else can I do with a you know major that was art, computer science and psychology, UI design. So I went to eBay. So I start off as UI design, then UX researcher, then cultural anthropologist, and then product strategy and then product management. <laughs> so I switched around a lot. So I was at eBay for about five years there. And nights and weekends, I continue to take uh, figure drawing classes. I took animation classes at the local community college, Gianza, because uh, the Lucasfilm animators would teach there. And I was just waiting for the day that I had saved up enough money from stock options that I could go get an MFA. But um, five years had passed and I was like, it's time, it's time to go. So I could tell my parents I'm not going to be poor destitute, but then the deadlines for MFAs had passed. And the only thing that was still available was a bachelor of fine arts, which meant I would have to go back with like the 17 year old. And anyways, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. Um, and my mom's like, why don't you apply to business school? That's still available. It's round three of business school. And I said, because I hate business. and. But like a good Confucian da daughter, I, I applied, I got in, and then I said, I told my mom, like, no, I'm not doing it. I really want to go to art school. And my boss, Susan Kim at the time, told me, don't be an idiot. You think that Hollywood is sexy, but you don't know. Go try it before saying no to Harvard. So I took her advice. I emailed everyone in the Stanford Alumni Database for any job internship I could find. I ended up packing up, going down south. And I was assistant to like Zach Braff and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's talent manager, Paul Dano, I like driving packages around LA, whatever I could do and learn that everything is a business at the end of the day. And my mom's always right. <laughs> so I decided to go. And I also learned that oftentimes business people take advantage of creative people. I was going to let that happen to me. So I went to- True statement. Yeah. Yeah. So I went, I went to business school and there I learned that it's a really dumb idea to start an animation studio ever, um, and became all practical, but uh, unless there's technological disruption. So 
yeah, in between those two business school years, I went to Pixar as an intern on Toy Story 3 and learned even more about animation in the industry. But after graduating, I ended up, uh, I really loved my time at Pixar, but I also, if you go into production at for animation, it's like you go from production assistant to coordinator to department manager to production manager to associate producer. And usually you have to be at that position for an entire film. I was totally willing to pay my dues, but I was afraid I would have to be pretend to be someone that I wasn't because it's so hard to move up in the industry that there's a lot of politics involved. And if I had to pretend to be this person I wasn't to play politics, I felt I would become that person. <laughs> and I didn't want to have to sacrifice who it is I am. So afterwards, um, when I was evaluating companies, uh, Zynga was one that I was really excited about because it was games, it was entertainment, <laughs> it was animation, and it was part of creating something completely new rather than being in a mature existing industry. So I, I just question on business school, do you feel like it's helped you at all in terms of actually starting and running a business? Zynga was the most helpful thing in running a business. It, it is because of Mark Pincus that I have the confidence. I was like, if I could do that, I can do anything. I suffered so hard and I survived. So I could do but um, for business school, what business school does is it gives you confidence. It's because before you don't know what you don't know about business, Right. And then after learning a little bit about everything, I'm not expert in any of those things. At least I know what I don't know. And then now I have enough friends and a network that I know, like if I have to do a discounted cash or whatever, I could call my banker friend and they can help me. And so I have the network to rely upon. The other thing business school really helps. So network, knowing what I don't know. It also helped me, um, you know, just train my muscle in terms of realizing that there's no right answer because at least at HBS, it's like affirmative action to like the nines where it's, it's like how many second children versus like first child birth order, like very specific. And you see that people answer every single case study in completely different ways and can answer it very convincingly. And you also learn it's not so much what the strategy is, even though strategy matters. It's more about can you convince the people on your team to follow your strategy? That is actually the greatest predictor of success. So just seeing that play out and seeing how there are different ways. Because before, like what people don't understand business, they're like, oh, there's a right way. That's the way. And you realize that not necessarily. So that was really helpful. Yeah, it's interesting. So many of my... Asian friends who have started companies, I think, struggle with the same thing that you do, which is the towing the line between art and like practical considerations, like the parents in the back of your mind being like, you have to do something that's practical. And at the same time, wanting to like, you know, go start the restaurant or like go do the, you know, animation studio. So it's, it's, I feel that tension all the time being Asian American. And I feel like Everyone needs to watch too. the movie um, 38 at the Garden that's on HBO, oh, by the gosh, way. Yeah, agreed. So good. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> About that specific topic. <laughs> yes. What was Zynga like when you joined? Like, how many people was it? Like, what was the state of the company at that point? I don't remember how many people. It was early on. Mark told me I was his first MBA hire, but I don't think that was true. <laughs> he told me because um, <laughs> he's like I can't get because he's an HBS alum. He's like I couldn't get any of them to come, and I got you to come. <laughs> like it's a good thing. Um, but it was crazy. I I started off on Yoville, and what was amazing? First, I cried. I cried like every day. <laughs> 
I would go after, after work, I would go home and I would go to this complex. I think it was like in Mountain View that had both like an L&L Hawaiian. And then I would go there, get the Spam Simon and then the chicken McNuggets and the apple pie and then a Krispy Kreme. And I just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so unhappy because I was so stressed out, but I learned to love it. Um, because like there was like you, there's like maybe two PMs in a game and then a few engineers and you would put it out, but you, I would be clicking refresh at nighttime at all hours of the night because I just put out a feature and I needed to make sure that the number was green because it tracks, because Zynga has a data dashboard of week over week, day over day, and also compared to expectations. And it's green if it's positive, red if it's negative. And Mark Pincus would receive on his desk a dashboard of all the gays. And I didn't want that to be red. <laughs> I didn't want to be screened out. So I click your refresh. And then if it goes red, you don't know if it's because Facebook, it's a, like a platform issue or if it's because you introduced a bug. So it was just highly stressful. But it's like a drug. You love it because it's like, I came up with a feature on Monday. I shared it with my team Tuesday and Wednesday. They coded it, made it happen. Thursday, it's out on an AB test. I said, yes, go on this. And Friday, I made them company a million dollars, right? That time cycle was amazing. And it's like a drug, right? It's addictive. Like I did that. I did that. And then you just keep on wanting to do it and you want to outdo yourself and do better and better and better. And seeing the, the company rocket ship like that based off of the feature that you did. And the amazing thing is, as a product management culture, we were so, we were both, both comp we were competitive with each other, but also like, it's like a, like a fraternity, right? Where you're suffering together because we all would get screened at if your numbers were red. So we would share, like, if I introduced some kind of feature that would do well, um, I would do a numbers review and share it with the other PMs and they would share data with me so I could have comparables to do my models and whatnot. So we learned from each other. So it was this like learning organism. Um, so it really prepared me really well for creating company. And when I look back, I like don't think as much about the fact that I had a bacterial and viral infection and couldn't go get an x-ray because I had to finish a model. <laughs> um, at the time, I don't think as much about this. And I think about how I didn't even realize that I had that potential and how Zynga helped me realize that I could do even better than I thought I could. So I'm forever thankful for that. And it really changed the way I also managing, right? I thought, you know, business school, they teach you this like nice way. And it's like, adapt your nice style way. to each person. And that whole like wartime CEO, peacetime, I love it. Like I make it require reading. <laughs> it comes into the company, but knowing to switch on and off and seeing the, the difference is because while Mark is polarizing, right? Like not everyone can handle it at the same time. He was so inspiring. Like I want, he's like, do you want to be the best? Like I remember he would set OKRs. I'd be like, I, I gave you the highest number I could hit. And I don't even know if I can do that. Why are you telling me I had to do better than that? No, I was so mad crying. And then I would hit that number that he wanted me to. And then I'm like, I didn't even know I could do that because it required me to think in a completely different way to in order, I couldn't think the normal way. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful for my experience there. How big was the team you ended up managing and, and what games did you work on there? Uh, so I was on like Yoville, Petville, and then I became like, I think director of product uh, when we were creating Farmville 2, then became EP and then GM of that. And then, so I looked over, We I launched Farmville 2 with my team mm -hmm. and then was then promoted to vice president of games looking over the Farmville franchise. 
So the, all the Fire Emblem games and that team was about, I think it was like 200 or so, like immediate there. And then um, Don Matrick came and then I reported to Don and then I was then put looking over new IP. So various roles. Like in between there, I was also, I just stint as like central product, looking at product across the different, yeah. You usually move around within companies. Very cool. So at what point, what motivated you to then to start your own company? One is, so Glenn Entis, he's one of my board members. Glenn was a co-founder of PDI, which DreamWorks acquired to become DreamWorks Animation to create CG film. So he founded, you know, one of the best animation companies. And then he became CEO of DreamWorks Interactive, which made Medal of Honor. So he partnered with Katzenberg and Spielberg, which birthed the whole entire first World War II first-person shooter genre. And apparently that team went to make Call of Duty. But he, he was like, yeah, Maureen, never try to do an animation studio. It's like, you know, you can't make payrolls. <laughs> so he's a very stressful, unless there's technological disruption. And when... VR came. So I've always wanted to do animation, like, but like, not just like lower graphics. I love like high production value and like beautiful art because I want to be art director. <laughs> so I, I always told everybody what it is that I want to do. Like I was never shy about it. And even while I was at Zynga, I was working with my two friends from Pixar. There are two art director production designers there on a short animated film called The Dam Keeper, which ended up getting nominated that year for the Oscars. So like nights and weekends, this is what I would be doing because I loved animation, but it made no sense as a business whatsoever. <laughs> like unless you have ridiculous amounts of capital or unfair distribution advantage. But when VR came, I said, this is my chance because no one knows what they're doing. Like it doesn't matter that Disney has lots of money. They don't know what they're doing. So I thought if I could find a crack team and with my connections, I can make a name for our company and our IP and expand from there and put my IP in every different medium. But VR right now spotlights on VR. I can make a name for ourselves in here. And so that was the, that's what led to it. But also I put on a VR headset. I'm like, what? This is why I love animation. Animation is because you're in this crazy world. And it, you know, I talk about how animation is like art in motion. You think you could reach out and touch the world. It's real. And in VR, you can actually reach out and touch the world. So I was like, oh, that's so exciting. And it was it was actually one of our games. It was static. Nothing was moving. It was just like the background and some mountains. I'm like, yes, I want to do this. So I was just really excited about finally doing it. I guess what's really interesting to me is Zynga has this like reputation to be extremely numbers focused. And I mean, in you know, some sense almost like very short-term oriented in certain ways. And your passion has always been, and, and it's just it's quite different than your passion, which has been more this like sort of deeply storytelling that feels more AAA to me than kind of your background, which is, I mean, Zynga's like, it, it was more of like a software company that was really good at, you know, being a software company and then made, happened to make games. I mean, that was that's the sort of reputation at least. How did, I guess, like Zynga inform your very different company, I guess, which is not, I mean, it's not like you guys are, I don't think, like sitting there and looking at graphs and <laughs> making small product tweaks and, and doing that sort of motion. Well, that's why I initially hated it, besides the pressure of refreshing. Yeah. Um, I disliked it because the reason why you do entertainment, entertainment is a bad business and it's just driven in general money losing industry. So you do it because you love it and you can't help it. You have to do it. But I'm also, 
because I went to the dark side, right? I was a product and I was hardcore product. I'm like, I'm going to be the best number monkey ever. (laughs) Rise. And which I did. But what I learned is um, oftentimes on the creative side, the person who wins is the most senior person, the loudest person, the one with the marker. And what you have when you have data is it doesn't matter how much experience, if you can prove with data that your idea is right through an A-B test, you can win. And so that, in a way, democratizes things. And I, one thing I really respected about Mark, he didn't care what level you were. You could be new, first day, like customer support community. He'll come talk to you, look at your screen, like, why is that checkbox there? Move it. <laughs> Nothing care. Like, whoever can move it for him, he didn't care. Um, That's so and so it, it was very flat in that way. And that drove managers crazy, right? They're like, no, you respect the hierarchy. But I loved that about it. And I learned that side because there are many times where I was biased. I thought like, yeah, it really matters to have some good animation here. No one cared about this. They just wanted to go as fast as possible for like, like to get, to, you know, it's like why people for the cut scenes for FFA, I love watching it all the time, but you know, people would open it and close it to skip past, you know, stuff like that. So the data actually taught me so much that sometimes creatives can be a little high horsey and having that data could set them straight. I think the problem is, we were very short-term focused. It was actually, I was considered heretical when I um, took charge of Farm 2, because at the time, Tim Letourneau, who's my mentor, was the chief creative officer. And so he was pounding on the other side. But I wanted to be like him, right? Because I wanted to be the artist. So I found this happy in-between, and then I created a new mission for Farm 2 team. I said, it's called change the company, prove that quality is created through collaboration and that quality is created. uh, No, sorry. Quality is good for business metrics and that quality is created through collaboration, which was considered like what? And then I did this thing where I made PMs and game designers equal and the PMs were pissed at me. They're like, what? You're abandoning, betraying us. But what I learned is if I could, and I put all the designers through PM bootcamp because I'm like, game designers, you can complain all you want. But at the end of the day, Mark Pincus is a CEO and he makes decisions based off of data. You could keep fighting that. You'll just never have power or you can learn the language and have power. So I put the designers through boot camp. So they learned all the metrics. And then after that, I made the designers in charge of the leading metrics. I made the PMs in charge of the trailing metrics. I made the PMs figure out what are things that are indications for improving engagement and retention versus, you know, PMs might want to just run a sale, screw the entire game, but boost the numbers temporarily. But it's like, you can't push through a feature unless the leading metrics are there, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, the point is it worked. So I would say, even though I was at Zynga, I was able to create something that worked for me because you have to be authentic to yourself. And then for, so taking that to Baobab, it's taking that I'm still, I'm a creature of Silicon Valley more than I'm a creature from Hollywood. And so sometimes to be honest, Hollywood doesn't love me because I'm too direct. I prefer the email, <laughs> the phone call, and I'm like leave word, like all this lingo. And this is why I have Kane do all the talking in Hollywood because he's very good because he genuinely likes everything. He's like, I love it, I love it, I love it. And when I don't love it, I say I don't like it. And that's not cool. You know, say that apparently. So I am more Silicon Valley, but I think that also helps me. And it also actually gives me a good perspective about, I find that oftentimes in Hollywood, they're very excited about new technology, the trend, because they don't want 
to, to happen to them what happened with the music industry, right? But then they jump on trends, but everybody from Silicon Valley knows that uh, technology takes a long, lot longer than people expect to actually hit. And then when it does, it's way more impactful than anyone had ever imagined, but it takes time. So like timing the thing right and then looking at the data to figure out, like to give an example right in the beginning of VR, everybody was like, I'm only going to put my stuff on this platform because this platform, you can view it the best and it's the prettiest and the blah, blah. I'm like, dude, there's nobody have VR headsets. You have distribution. You put your content, every single headset possible. <laughs> so I'm like all about distribution. And that's why Invasion, our first piece, became the number one downloaded experience because I wasn't going to be precious about it. So that's like the the Zynga like distribution Balance. thing. Yeah. But at the same time, we made the like super high quality product that wins awards. And I like, give I view my job as making sure that my creatives have enough runway to generate a hit. So that's how I view my job. And we have a good relationship that way. And that's also why I thought it was very important to have three co-founders. I found that all the companies I've been in is the CEO favors their function, like Mark favors PMs, like uh, eBay favors strategy based off who the CEO is. And I feel like for a successful entertainment media company, you need equal parts business, creative, and, and technical. And so that's why we have Eric Darnell chief, as chief creative officer and Larry Cutler as CTO. How was it like raising money for your company at the time, sort of, you know, beginnings of I was VR so or this? Yeah. I was so like naive, but it worked out well. So I was like, I'm not going to do the seed thing because I don't, why would I want to do it twice? Fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I had this idea that like, just like three weeks. <laughs> okay, wow. three weeks. But, Did you hear that from somebody? Where'd you get three weeks from? I think I was talking to Kevin Lin. He, he's our, oh, yeah. he helped me. He didn't become a board mentor later. He was so instrumental in helping me fundraise, but he was giving me advice and he's like, yeah, you, the first week is like the people that you're practicing on <laughs> and also you, or, and, or, you know, are going to say yes, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yes. And then you say the ones you're <laughs> like, you know, all that stuff. Um, it's a game. And I was like, all right, so first week. And then second week was the people I want. And then partner meeting third week, done. <laughs> like, so easy. Um, right. <laughs> well, we, we did do it. We did it in two months. So I was like very proud of myself. But I had unrealized. I, I thought when it was like week two and I didn't have the third sheet, I was like, I'm a failure. <laughs> calling right. Kevin. What is like, going on? No one loves yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> months and months to raise. Like, why are you thinking that? But what was amazing is, remember I told you all those times I had told people throughout my career what I really want to do? They all came out of the woodwork to help me in every possible way. Like my first boss at eBay, UI Design, Janie, she helped me create my deck. I mean, she's a UXer. She makes things beautiful. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I'm making, I'm selling a company that does entertainment. It has to be entertaining, the deck. So Larry, I randomly found because when I was deciding whether or not to go to business school, I emailed everyone in the Stanford alumni database for those jobs. He was at DreamWorks. He responded to me and we kept in touch. And I ran into him during a Chinese New Year's parade, told him what he, I was doing. He's like, hey, maybe I'll join you. And he's my CTO now, right? Eric Darnell, my chief creative officer, I met because Glenn Entis, the guy I told you about, I asked him like, hey, do you know any directors? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he hired Eric into DreamWorks and Eric directed all the Madagascar films and ants. So that's how that connection happened. 
And then Gavin Teo, who ended up, and Michael Yang, who ended up leading my Series A, Gavin was a PM on Farmville. And he actually helped me. He was just giving me advice. Of course, like sneaky, sneaky VCs is to make sure that they're in there. But, but he was giving me advice on making my deck or whatever. And then all my Zynga friends, like Siki, who's on the best at fundraising. <laughs> I've never met Siki Chan. He, you know, he would help me review my deck. So Nabil helped me because I helped Nabil when he was like Zynga Boston and Zynga Boston helped out my game Farmville 2. And so I got to know Nabil. So he helped me from a VC perspective. So it was all, and then in terms of getting my advisory board, Glenn Entis invited, um, I wanted Ed also. And he's like, not Ed, but I know Alvi. I'm like, yes, Alvi, the other co-founder of Pixar. And then Alvi introduced me to Glenn Keane. And so it was all through my history of people who ended up coming out and making that all happen within a few months. So I'm just really grateful. But I went straight for the A. I didn't do the C. And I worked, like, people worked on like IOUs. <laughs> No, I I mean, I think that's totally true. I think you you, (laughs) keeping the uh, timeline shorter, uh, the longer it goes, the worse it gets. I feel like it's just a blood in the water kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. it's important. It's sad because I feel like there's this is totally stereotyping and categories, but like the entrepreneurs who are really good at selling like marketing BD and then there's entrepreneurs who are really good at a product and Mm. I feel like VCs especially like ones that are especially good at selling, like, yeah, which makes sense because you're pitching. But as long as they're paired with a good product, people, but I see so many like entrepreneurs who aren't great at that other thing, but can build a great product. And I'm like, well, I'd rather that, but I'm biased because my background's in products. (laughs) Yeah. But it was eye opening to learn like without Kevin teaching me how to do that, I would have been like way too direct, like, you know, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like like if a, that's great. A, a VC's assistants like, yeah, I can schedule a meeting out in four weeks. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, things are moving faster than I had expected. I would love to meet with so and so. Do you think, like I didn't know to say that? I would have been like, oh yes, thank you so much. Right. Four weeks later, that's okay. <laughs> like no, but Curtis also from Zynga, he had just done Lux at the time. He's like, no, you tell them you will not meet them except these two weeks. <laughs> like pile them all in, create FOMO and all that stuff. But I would not have known that had my friends not come out to help me and teach me all that stuff. But yeah. I hope to give it back. I was to say, <laughs> you're sharing wisdom. It's true. It's typically like, <laughs> I'm like, I'll share all this stuff later. Not while I'm running a company though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I mean, VCs know this. You know this, Kevin. Of <laughs> course. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. You ended up raising from quite a number of different folks and strategics and VCs and angels. I mean, it is hard raising money. And I I think, unfortunately, we're back into that sort of market again. And it's quite challenging for founders. Um, but but maybe moving from on, on from that, like, how did you then get the most out of your investors? And, and you know, how, how were you able to get them to help you? And yeah. So I, <laughs> high maintenance. I've always said, I'm like, I'm high maintenance, but I'm worth it. <laughs> I tell my investors... I just ask them for stuff all the time. <laughs> and like, How can you help me today? How about now? How about now? How about now? I had one VC said, I gave you the money and that's where my job is. And then I said, do you want me to tell other entrepreneurs that? <laughs> said, no. <laughs> hey, <laughs> so you're help me. But also because I chose investors that genuinely, first, I specifically did a bunch of strategic, like business school, I learned like strategic may not good because 
you know. Right. Yeah. That's the common wisdom. But yeah. It was pure financial. Like the investment is pure financial. So there's like a wall. But I knew that VR was going to take forever. And I knew VCs are on this like five year cycle, get the cash back. I want to align myself with the people who give me distribution advantage and value IP and are aligned for the industry for the long term. So people like Samsung HTC, great for the headsets, right? Getting favored treatment and connections within the company, um, but they're also in it for the long run. And the Comcast is great, right? Because I have Comcast, I have Disney, Sherry Redstone, you know, chairwoman of Viacom, all them. One of the reasons I want to do that is to make sure that nobody felt that I was only going to do it for them. But I also want to show because I, right from the beginning, my plan was always never just to be VR. It was to create IP that goes in different mediums and there are people who know how to take IP into different mediums. So I love strategics because they can actually help me in the actual industry. So I love that. And that's how I put together the suite of investors that I had. Yeah, I do think it's critical to have multiple strategics kind of to your you can you can get them all to help you in different ways and also it creates a little competition and that that definitely motivates people. <laughs> I was speaking about VR because you just you know was just talking about it. Obviously, VR has seen like some highs and some lows. What's your sort of take on where the industry's going and how much time do you spend thinking about the space? I mean, obviously you guys came, you know, out as like a VR company sort of and now you're doing other things, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts? Well, we made our non-VR deals like within year one or two of our company. So again, it was never like marketing wise, I'm like VR. But um, when we, after we did Invasion, um, we had that deal with Joe Roth for turning Invasion into a feature film. Joe Roth used to be the Disney chairman. And then shortly after that for series B, when Fox Disney came in, uh, we struck we never have shared this outside, actually. So you can excuse um, We have a first look deal with Fox Disney for all of our IP to become feature films and, and or, or television. So we struck that. And then we made our book deals early on as well with multi-series book deals with Penguin Random House and also Macmillan. So all of that. And we've, we've since now announced. So those are all these things are in the works, but we could never announce them. But we announced the two book series and we've announced two series with Disney+. Plus. So it was always happening. I'm still really excited about VR. I think it just takes time. But that, I thought, was one of the best ways that I was able to get investment. I didn't go into the VC saying, VR is here. It's here. My, I said, it's going to take forever. And here's my plan of how to not die. Like, what this And then when it comes, I'm going to be the only one alive. And then bam, I got an advantage of all this stuff. So I think that was helpful because a lot of VCs were still skeptical of VR, even though it was totally. hot. But they were like, they liked that I was being honest and seeing it in a more practical light. But um, I'm really excited about VR because I think in the like super future, we're not going to be watching things only on a linear way. Like, why would you not want to be like, like me when I love animation, I want to be in that world. Why would I not want to be, in, I don't want to wear a heavy ass headset that's fogging up and I look really not cool and can bump into walls. I don't want that. But if I could be seamlessly in that world, why would I not want that? So I definitely think it's coming, but I, I think right now it's being marketed solely as a gaming machine. So that's right. You're going to get, gamers right now so you're not going to really expand beyond that so, which is why i was excited about the within 
um, acquisition that's now kind of, you know. Oh, the fitness. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris is one of our advisors, so I really like him and admire him. But so it's going out to fitness and different things and it needs that. But right now it's still being marketed as a gaming machine. So this podcast is great because it's for gamers. But for it to become big, it's like, oh, I'm fine with gamers lead being the leader, leading edge, because I think it's like they're made for each other, <laughs> gaming and VR. But um and by the way, also VR is really exciting because it's not it's not like mobile gaming where you put it on and you're competing with like a bajillion people. So it's nice. You're competing against very few people. And then you have a psycho engaged install base who will play anything that comes out. So it's I'm still very bullish and it's an exciting time to get on, but I think the headsets aren't there yet. I'm excited about Apple. I'm very excited about Apple. Even the um, new Pico headset is an improvement on what's out there. If you've had it, it's like very comfortable, but it's it still has a ways to go. So you also have a games division now. When did that start? And tell us a bit about the types of games you want to make. Are you using the IP you already have? Are you making new IP? Our specialty is actually merging games and story together. And it's a it's really exciting because I see the two converging right now, right? With game like Riot doing like Arcane and now and the film people wanting to do like Mario. I'm really excited about the Mario movie, but like trying to find additional IP in the game space. So it's really exciting because the two industries do not understand each other at all. Having come from yeah. I, I'm more traditional game I'm from gaming. And I hired a bunch of film people to work with me. So I had to learn more on the film side. But they like from personality, like film people, very liberal, not to say ga- gaming is also liberal, but gaming is kind of like, look at how much I suffer. <laughs> it's like, I'm a rebel. Um, I know I'm stereotyping, but more like the indie vibe, like, yeah, um, like outcast rebel versus film. It's like more like the, the jocks. <laughs> it's a it's just very different it's definitely not the rebel necessarily and also the working hours too completely different just a lot more suffering (laughs) in games i would say and just approach to things but they also the two don't realize how similar they are to another one of the like the script is the same thing as a core loop in terms of iteration and it never gets done until the last minute (laughs) it keeps on changing but as soon as you change one little thing everything changes so and then also people think that games are giving up a control not really the like a creative director is actually like how do i get you to feel like you're in control (laughs) i'm in control so there's actually a lot of similarities but getting these two industries to work together is really hard but i find our thesis is that the ideal experience is where you can interact where you matter to the world you matter to the characters because why would you not want to matter be the protagonist of your story yet it's a world that you actually want to be in like a one with like rich environment with an actual great storyline with great characters Right. And with rules that you really fall in love with. And I think the film people and and TV people are great at story, character and worlds and game people great at the interactivity. And what if you could have interactivity in that sweet, awesome world (laughs) story? That would be great. So that's what we are trying to do. So while I do have a games division and I have the film, TV, the publishing division, that's why it's so important that they're working with each other at all times is so that I create these experiences that have the best of both worlds. And I do think that is the future, it's, especially when you're talking about the metaverse, right? It's like ugly in there right now. 
<laughs> I want something beautiful with a beautiful avatar that actually reflects because it's my identity that looks like me. I want to be able to interact with other characters where their expressions, like sensitivity, like when I smile, the like fleshy part under my eyes actually goes up to tell a real smile from a fake smile. I want to feel connection through mirroring of actions. I want all of that. I want the gameplay of stuff to do with my friends. And I want to do it in a beautiful world where I like care about the characters and their real stakes. Right. So I want all of that. So that's what we do. And in terms of the games division, so I've always had game people from the very start because that's my background, especially on the product side. So David Kahn um, was the first PM ever at Zynga. And so he's our head of product and he's wonderful. And so he's, I've always had the gaming component. And so even all of our VR experiences where there's a story narrative, but every single experience we had is you are in the story and how you change the story. For example, Bonfire, which was starring Ali Wong, it's just like a we built a state engine AI system with a relationship meter between you and the other characters. And based off of how you interact, it actually changed how they interact with you. And you could do anything at any given point, and it would like rearrange a story and screw everything up. But to give you an example, if you keep on throwing a log at the Ali Wong robot character in a typical game, maybe she would like cycle through a bunch of animations. But we put in the extra stuff of like, at some point, she like just turns herself off because that's how someone would actually react if you kept on annoying them, right? Right. So right. from a game perspective, I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to code an extra thing to think about that. But from a film side, I'm like, I care about that because then it makes you feel more immersed and that it's real. So anyways, that that's to think about the future of Beobah for you to know where we're going. It is the metaverse both the game experience combined with the great world and story. And sorry, I keep on not answering your question. I've had game people throughout, but I started hiring even more people beginning of last year, actually before. So 20, what's it, 21. 21. Yeah. So we have, we made some announcements. So for example, we have like Michael McCormick, he was a creative director at Maxis. Virginia MacArthur, she was a producer of the original, like the Sims games and like um, Spore. And she, I met her at Zynga. She hired me <laughs> into Zynga. So she was um, executive producer on a lot of the Zynga games. Also, Brian Tinsman, who was creative director at Disney Interactive, and he was at uh, the original, the Pokemon games, and also Magic the Gathering. Who else do I have? I have a lot of other people. <laughs> Anyways, the point is I started hiring all these game desires, like even more people to boost that division even more. Yeah. That's quite the roster. Yeah. I was gonna say it's, it's pretty expensive to uh, build games and also to make films. Like, how do you think about focus? Number one, I guess, and then like just even just like just the cost of being able to put stuff out, especially in like you know work multiple divisions and whatnot. Like, just as a founder, how are you like managing that? My specialty is being the cheapest entrepreneur you'll have ever met. Like, I used to <laughs> tech crush just about there. Like, you know, I'm like, I don't want to be a unicorn with a cockroach. You can't kill me. <laughs> I would tell people, you're lucky we have water and coffee, <laughs> no free things and chairs. But um, this is I remember why. Phil said that about you. <laughs> when yes, we met up. I love. That's by the way one of the reasons why how I got the most out of my investors is I had people like Phil Chen who genuinely cared about our company more than just making money. And he's like, he's like, I'm going to make money by making you successful. Um, he was like our BD person <laughs> as our VC. So I love Phil Chen, by the way. He also like officiated my wedding. That's how much I like him. Because <laughs> so, he's also a pastor. <laughs> so one great thing about 
especially VR, because the distributors want to create an industry. They were giving out funds. And when your product does well, like I, I funded the first one, Invasion, but it was super cheap when I did it. But then I, um, after it did well, then I can go back and say, hey, would you be interested in this other thing? And then if I also have now, I have John Legend attached and Oprah, are you interested? Like things like that. So a lot of my IP, to be honest, has been funded, though I own the IP. So that's been great because I don't like using my runway <laughs> to, to create things. So that's one of the key ways, but also we make money. And also, even though it was always part of our plan to go multi-platform, we also get money from putting our IP on other platforms as well. Can you give our audience a sneak preview? What are some of the exciting titles you're, you're working on? Yeah. So one of them is called Momoguro. And think of it as there's, I don't know how much I can say, but we'll know the time. So imagine there's these organic creatures that combine, they're called Momos, and they combine these together to create and form these Momo beasts that can fight and defend the world from evil. <laughs> so it's really a message about unity over division, which normally you would think, obviously, but in a very polarized society, <laughs> sometimes you have to sacrifice <laughs> for the greater good. <laughs> and so that's, and it's um, the creators are Nico and Martin from Argentina and Venezuela. They're very brilliant. They actually came from VR. They created this amazing uh, project called Battlescar, which is how we met them. We liked them and they had this idea. And so they came to us and were like, yes, we would love to do this. And we love the IP. So you can imagine that it is going in multiple mediums because we are super excited about it and putting all our weight behind it. But that's going to come out um, as a Web3 game digital collectibles game, and also something else that I can't talk about yet, but you'll hear about very soon. But we're very excited about that, that specific story and set of characters. What, what is it about? I mean, obviously, Web3 is like VR has had, you know, its highs and lows. Why did you guys decide to do something in that space? Because I love that the community itself is actually the ones giving me the money because they actually care about it and like it and they can grow alongside me. I think communities have so much power now, like like even Marvel, whatever, if you get enough people to complain about something or want to go that direction, you know, film companies are actually hearing, but I would like to build what the my audience wants right from the beginning. It's like having a market research are like the actual end consumers helping me build it. So why would I not want that? So making sure that it's something that the market actually wants and the people that are contributing actually are the ones who benefit from it. So it just makes sense. Also, our mission statement for the company is inspire the world to dream, bring out your sense of wonder, make you matter. And so that last part, make you matter, people are like, what does that mean? It's what I actually believe differentiates us from all animation studios out there because I'm not interested in just having you passively experience. I want you to be part of the experience as a character or the main character, that's obvious what it means in a game. But in a film, it's not as clear, but it could be as simple as making you um, the first person and breaking the fourth wall like they do in Fleabag, which is one of the best TV shows ever. So everyone needs to watch that. To like VR, where you're inserting yourself into it. So Web3 uh, or Digital Collectibles is about the community like actually mattering because they're the ones helping to build the story, build the game with us. So it makes sense that it's a natural fit. That being said, I want to make it clear, we're not a Web3 company. 
Um, we are a IP company that creates IP that, and Web3 is one of the mediums, is one of the platforms we put our IP out on. I guess one like founder question from my end is like, I guess seven years, obviously running a startup and me running a startup also is tiring and hard. How have you dealt with the challenges of basically doing all the things that you're doing for, I guess, you know, I guess you guys are more a mature startup right now being like the seven year period. Like how, how are you sort of like getting through and just continuing to do new things and, you know, crush it and do all the things that you're doing? Well, my number one piece of advice to all founders is first, don't do it. And then second, if you do do it, <laughs> like, you don't know, you have no idea. Just you're suffering. I'm like, everything is your fault. <laughs> and you would like to think like everything that's good is your fault too. But it's like, I don't know. I never think that way. Maybe it's because like the Asian mom voice in my head. But I think, but anything that doesn't happen well, it's like someone did something poorly, but I hired that person. Or when people are like, it's luck. I'm like, no, I should have seen that coming. Like my strategy or whatever, which goes against what I said about the HBS thing. But I feel that way. So I think the best thing is about having co-founders is the most important thing. And if you don't have co-founders, so the nice thing about co-founders is sharing the load. When you're crying underneath your desk thinking you suck, you have someone to say, no, you don't suck so bad. I suck now. (laughs) So (laughs) the emotional support. Totally agree. Someone to prop you up. You need that. And then in the absence of that is having entrepreneur friends because nobody, we all have to pretend like everything's awesome all the time. Right. You always be selling. And so I always say, how are you? And everyone's like, great. And I know they're not great. And so when people ask me, how are you? I'm like, it sucks because I want to be obvious and show them that they can be vulnerable with me too and to build trust. But no one's willing to say it. So having other entrepreneur friends where you can actually tell them how you're really feeling. And it's great because sometimes when I tell my friend, he's like, oh man, that sucks. It makes me feel better that my problems aren't as bad because that's bad. Like, even if it's that, <laughs> it's fine. But oftentimes they felt something like that before. Or maybe they've dealt with it and can give you advice about what to do. Like I've managed big teams and groups, but a lot of founders have, I, I feel like a lot of questions I get from other founders is about management and being able to help them, I think is because like, it's okay. Let them go. <laughs> They're not the right fit. It's not you. <laughs> We're like, you know, in the beginning of startup, when, if somebody leaves, you start, you you take it so personally and like, it's my fault. And then at some point that's not healthy. If you're like, it's all me, it's all me. And then at some point you might veer to the other side and you're like, no, it's all you. (laughs) It's your fault. It's not me. And then you get to this like middle ground where you're like, yeah, it's a little me. It's a little you, which is not the right fit. It's okay. Right. But to get to that point to talk to founders who have gone through it, like really helps. Totally. One question that we ask in every episode is, um, yeah, if there's, one kind of piece of advice that you could give uh, other founders that are kind of going through uh, maybe a similar journey, thinking about starting a company based off of all that you learn, what would what would that piece of advice be? I was thinking about this and I don't know if I believe in my answer anymore because I was going to say to chill out, but I also feel like that's part of the journey that's so exciting in the beginning because you think it's life and death, right? You think everything you do is going to be life and death. And my other entrepreneur friends who had done it multiple times are like, Maureen, it's okay. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I just didn't believe it. I'm like, no, I'm going to sprint like a mar for the entire marathon. Everyone, <laughs> like, I'm ashamed. And I realize now how they were so correct. <laughs> I didn't listen. Um, how you have to feed yourself because you are 
you are the light bulb. You're the energy source of the company. And so when you are full and energized, you they feed off of the energy. And when you are stressed out and anxious and your light is dim, no matter how much you think you're hiding it, you can probably sense it. Um, so you need to make sure you take care of yourself as well. I know you're not going to believe, no one's going to, like, I didn't believe that. I'm like, whatever. So I'm gonna, if this thing fails, I'm a failure, which every entrepreneur thinks, by the way. I know it's super unhealthy, but it's okay. Everybody totally feels that way. And to be honest, VCs probably love that because they want you to never <laughs> So, but it's totally normal. No, physical and mental well-being is so important. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard enough as is. And, and to your point, a lot of people think, everything is on them. And and hopefully, you know, you find your co-founders, your employees, and, and hopefully find yourself investors, right? Who who isn't just there yeah. for for the ultimate number or the exit, but knowing that, you know, it's kind of a it's a failure in and of itself if to if you spring all the way towards the end and collapse. <laughs> Even if you did make the best time. So yeah. I feel like Kevin cares about me. So <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> well thank you so much for for joining us on the uh, episode. Thank you, Eden. Thank you so much, Maureen. Evan.